1: Welcome to a special edition of Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, USBets Managing Editor and Media Director. And while I'm not joined right now by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist John Brennan, you will hear his voice plenty on this podcast. After 105 episodes across just over two years, this week we're highlighting some of our favorite clips from the Gamble On interview featuring the biggest names and most knowledgeable insiders from across the gambling world. We'll go through these selections chronologically. So we start nearly two years ago, way back in September 2018, when legal sports betting was just starting to go live outside Nevada. Here's one of our favorite recurring guests making his first appearance, semi-pro sports better Brad Feinberg. So Brad, every gambler has stories. Uh, I'm curious if you could give us uh, your all-time biggest win and also your most crushing bad beat.
2: My most crushing bad beat is easy, and it's funny. And if you speak to any gambler, or at least any gambler I know, every single one remembers. The, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, I could, I could, I mean, God, I could, I could tell you stories. You could be on the next ten hours of the bad beats. Uh, <laughs> Scott Van Pelt would be jealous. Um, I probably had every one of those. But my worst one ever—it was, I'd say, ten years ago, give or take. Okay. And I did, I did a two thousand dollar parlay to pay 1.2 million dollars okay whoa and it was a seven game money line parlay of all huge underdogs okay i remember the biggest one was the this was when the the, this was years and years ago the (laughs) the rams were like oh and seven and they were at the saints getting like eight to one odds and that was one of the games I put in my parlay. Again, I do these, I thought they were all I thought every one of these had value, each individual play I thought had value. And that one that was the big one that was getting like 8 to 1 odds. And this is before now you can do live betting and you know, you can bet, you know, if people don't know, you can bet on least on my offshore accounts. You can bet during the game. Right. Um and get out of like for example, let's suppose you have a parlay, $100 to pay 260. And you won the first game, and the second game is looking good, but you don't want to, like, you know, order take the game like the Eagles Falcons game last week. You can hedge out of that and say, you know what, I I, I think if you had the Falcons, I think Eagles are going to win, and you can whatever the live betting is, you can lock in, you know, something by betting the opposite side. This is way before those days, okay? So basically, you're either going to win or you were going to lose. <laughs> and six of the six of the games are uh, had won, or I knew you know knew we were going to win, and everyone was getting at least three to two or higher. And that's why, again, it, it, it paid, it paid $1.2 million. The last game. I remember the, I still remember to this day, there was the quarterback for the Miami dolphins was a guy named Cleo lemon. (laughs) And the dolphins were Oh, and eight or Oh, and seven. It was like week eight of the NFL season. And they were beating the bills. And I had the dolphins with the money line. They were beating them 10 to two with 10 minutes left in the game. Ten to two, and I knew I had the other the other games they were all winning easily, and I knew they were going to win and I remember going up and taking the longest shower in my entire life because i couldn't, i couldn 't <laughs> watch it like, you know this was life changing money right. i couldn't i couldn 't watch it, so I took like i swear it was like a forty five minute shower, and i just <laughs> i 'm like all right i 'm just going to find out if I won or lost, so I logged into my account and <laughs> I see, you know, there's not seven figures in there. (laughs) So I see, I see, I I see that I see that I lost and they lost 13 to 10. And what's funny is I became obsessed again, way before like you could watch every game on TV or whatnot. And like I was able to find on inside the NFL, they showed highlights of that game and Ted Ginn, when it was ten ten, returned the kickoff for a touchdown to give Miami a lead seventeen ten, and they called the worst block in my back penalty uh, I've seen in my life. Yeah. I still remember it. It still sticks with me <laughs> to this day. Um so I would say that it was definitely uh, I, I lost this part. I mean, that was that was the toughest, you know, the yeah. toughest beat. I mean, I guess had a lot of them in terms of Good wins. Um,
1: yeah, let's, let's, end, let, let's finish the question yeah, on, a, a, on a happier note. A give me, give, me, give yeah. me a fun win. <laughs>
2: I'll give you a fun win. Um, again, I, I do everything based on odds, and I would encourage other people to do that too. What do I mean by that? Let's suppose um, you think something has a 1 in 10 chance of happening. You think it's going to lose, right, 9 out of 10 times? Right. But if someone's offering you 15 to 1 odds, you should make that bet 100 out of 100 days because if you do it over time – you're going to get a nice return on your investment. Right. Okay, but I put in losing bets all the time where I know that over the long run, it'll still be a profitable bet, even though I think (laughs) it's going to lose that isolated time. This was, I think it was 2004. The Detroit Tigers were 300-1 to to win the pennant in um, baseball. This was Justin Verlander's rookie season, I believe. Hmm. And I had a nice... $500 $500 hour bet on that one, which was a that was a nice hit. Uh, they ended up going to the World Series. I didn't have them to win the World Series. I had them to win the pennant and they played the uh, they lost to the Cardinals in the World Series, but that was a a very nice hit that I, you know, that I won in terms of uh, a future, again, betting on something I thought would lose, but I thought the true odds on that team should have been maybe closer to 100-1 to 1 to right. win the pennant, and I got 300-1 so I made the bet knowing you know I still thought it had value and um you know it won right
1: and i and i think that might have been oh six. i think it's yeah uh, it was something like that. was i think it was
2: 06 mm-hmm. i actually think you right. I think you are right i think it was i think it was 2006 yeah anyway but yeah that was that was in terms of like big like big hits big long shot things that was that was definitely oh you know another one that was really good was, and this was a again being at the right place right time when they, it would be hard to do this in today's time, but when the when the uh, Celtics signed uh, Ray Allen, uh, or they traded for Kevin Garnett and got Ray Allen, and they did that, you know, they had their whole big three thing. Mm-hmm. One of my offshore sites was, like, slow in adjusting the line on the Celtics to win the title, and uh, I was able to, to to really hit that one pretty good. Nice. And they, they beat the Lakers in uh, in six games that year.
1: We've had our share of notable politicians on the podcast, and here's former New Jersey State Senator Ray Lesniak celebrating with us the start of legal sports betting in his state, a development in which he played a key role.
3: Uh, yeah, Senator, I just, I just want to ask, what's your uh, kind of your own background on gambling? Uh, I'll give you the free plug. I, I did see you uh, bet on France to win the World Cup, uh, one of the first bets made at Monmouth Park in June, and uh, actually, UK. it was
4: the first, it was the first winning bet. Murphy, <laughs> Murphy, cut, cut in line. He, he but he bet Germany, so I cashed the first winning bet.
3: Yes, uh, Governor Phil Murphy is a former U.S. ambassador to Germany, so it's sort of understandable why he would pick that. Aside from them being a favorite. Well, pick. you
4: know, let me get let me get my plug in. I won a human rights award uh, in uh, the Memorial de Cannes the Human Rights Museum in in Normandy, in France. So I had a little bit of affinity for, for my <laughs> choice as well.
3: Yeah, very good. So so some, tell us if it's something you enjoyed growing up. I, I think you said you used to play the ponies a little bit or what kind of gambling uh, interested uh, you? Good,
4: or interested yeah, in you? more more than a little bit. My dad was a big horse player. Uh, we had a train. There was a train that ran every Saturday to Mammoth Racetrack from Elizabeth. He would go on that train with $40 to bet. He would bet $20 to win on a horse in a race, hook that up with a $20 double if that horse in the first race lost, he'd go back in the train and wait for everybody to go home. <laughs> but if that won, he would have a great time and a great party. So yeah, we've, uh, my, my dad and I spent a lot of time, uh, betting on the ponies and going up to Saratoga and Monmouth racetrack. So it's a, and I used to bet for take bets from, for him to our local grocery store, uh, to bet on the horses. So yeah, I'm well ingrained in, uh, in, in betting on the horses. And, uh, and, you know, I see, I saw the enjoyment that people get from it. And most, most importantly, the economic benefits that go along with it that the state of New Jersey was being deprived of.
3: Well, your dad taught you responsible gambling uh, and all seriousness. That's uh that's a, that's a good thing for, for you and for everybody.
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, but, but let me mention one thing in terms of, you know, the anti-gambling people. And I understand those concerns and, You know, uh, some of this revenue needs to go for for those programs. But but the most dangerous form of gambling is the lottery. Uh, You know, I live close few houses down from low income housing uh, uh, development and right across the street from it is a convenience store. People go there lined up to buy lottery tickets that they can't afford either. So, um, you know, it's something that we have to look at on a, a generic basis and provide opportunities and treatment, but we shouldn't deprive people who want to gamble responsibly the uh, opportunity to enjoy it.
1: Shortly after his controversial third place finish in the 2019 DraftKings Sports Betting National Championship, we had professional better Rufus Peabody on the show. Here, he sounds off on an unsavory element of the industry. I saw some recent tweets from you in response to the new Showtime documentary series about sports betting. Uh, you are clearly not a fan of Vegas Dave uh, and their decision to <laughs> use him in the series. Uh, I'm, is your opinion that all touts are are bad and, and con artists, uh, or is your reaction specific to this individual, this Vegas Dave character? Well, I think Vegas
5: Dave is just the most egregious offender of in, in the tout world because he... he you know he, he'll buy futures tickets on every team before the season begins and then later on in the season be like ah i had 50 to 1 for a huge amount of money on this one team and you know he'll quote a record he basically plays a martingale system in major league baseball meaning he'll just double up on uh, you know, if his bet loses, he'll double, and if it loses, he'll double again, and then say, "Oh well, this is the system." That's one win, and so he has a record of like 120 wins and four losses, but the four losses are all 60 <laughs> 60 units or something. So, so I mean, uh, but, but more generally, I think the tout industry. Um, I I don't want to say that all touts are losing betters, but if if you're a winning tout, it becomes uh, the business model becomes unsustainable because there are people out there that will see your information move on those picks, and basically blow up the market, move the lines. And so the average customer won't be able to get down at the lines that you actually sent out. And so in, in efficient markets, and these markets, I guess, you know the bigger markets, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, are pretty efficient. Uh, you know, if, if you're getting a worse price, that's the difference between you know winning and losing. And so in general, like anytime you see some handicap or a tout, claim that they've been doing this for 30 years and, you know, serving the community for 30 years. That means that they're, they've been generally losing or best break even for 30 years. And so, especially after fees, I, I don't think it ever pays to, to buy picks.
1: In case you're wondering, yes, Rufus Peabody is his real name. This next clip comes from another pro sports better, one who goes by a pseudonym, Captain Jack Andrews. We had Captain Jack on right after U.S. Bets published his article
3: on the value of sharp money. Can you elaborate on that recent article you did? Um, you talk about how sports books uh, should take bets from sharps. That's beneficial to them. That seems counterintuitive probably to most people. So, so how do they benefit from taking uh, those bets? Right. So – you know, and that
6: it was a little bit of a controversial article in that I'm sure a lot of sportsbook operators saw it or read it and just laughed it off because, you know, in the end, it's not profitable to bet on, to to book only sharp bettors. However, if you can use that sharp action as a portion of your overall handle and you can use it in a way to direct you how to shape your market, uh, it can be very beneficial Um I kind of touched on on three points, and the first was that it's only fair to to book sharp action, and that's the that's the point I made that kind of appeals to the betters as well as to the general public. Um, you know, if if you're offering us to come in and take a shot at you, then when somebody comes in and takes a shot at them and has some brain power behind it, they don't want to take that action. That just seems very un-American. It just seems just a bad way to do business, uh, a bad way to foster. Uh, new customers coming on board. If they think they might, you know, one day be limited or told they can't bet here anymore, they they probably don't even want to come in the door. Um, secondly, sharp money is predictive. In other words, it can tell you where the market's going to end up. You know, the market throughout the day, uh, the sports betting day, is is always moving, uh, going one way or the other and usually going in one direction only as as more and more sharp bettors get their money down. Um, and A sportsbook can use that sharp money as sort of a a barometer of where the market's going and how fast it's going there. Uh, If they miss some kind of news that the sharp bettors know, uh, you know, those sharp bettors are going to race to the window, so to speak, and get their money down. um, It's a good sign to say, hey, wait a minute, what did we miss? Why is this guy betting into this line this way? Um, And then the third thing is the reason that they should permit sharp money to an extent is because it's going to come in anyway. You know, these sharp bettors were well-versed in kind of the the art of betting. Uh, We know how to get the money down. We know how to kind of uh, get around the system, so to speak. Uh, We've been doing it for years and years, trying to bet in these underground markets. Um, And now in legalized markets, you know, why not just accept their wagers to an extent? And uh, that way you don't have to deal with all of the capital expenses of administration and trying to prevent all these different leaks of people coming in through the window when the doors closed.
1: This next guest was particularly thrilling for us to have on, as we believe on was the very first podcast to feature James Holzhauer once he started to become known to America as Jeopardy James. Here's a bit of our conversation with the pro sports better who moonlighted as a game show phenomenon. Uh, getting back to uh, to Jeopardy, uh, the the all in move on the daily double is becoming one of your calling cards, and it speaks to both your willingness to gamble and your confidence that you can build your score back up if you happen to zero out. So, two questions do you feel most Jeopardy contestants aren't playing optimal strategy with their daily double betting? And also, what does it feel like when you have $5,000 or $10,000 built up and you risk it all and get a question that you don't know the answer to?
7: Uh, So for the first question, you know, I've worked out what I thought was the optimal strategy for me going in. and, And I'm playing as close to that as I can, but you know, I don't know if that's the optimal strategy for everyone. They might uh, not feel confident with a certain category that the daily double is in, or maybe they can't focus on the trivia question when they have, I'm going to do air quotes here, $10,000 at risk. And you know, really, I think those are just kind of points on a scoreboard until you actually win the game and it goes to your bank account. But uh you know, They call them dollars on the show, and I think there's a real psychological barrier for some people. And If you don't think you can answer a question correctly because you're being distracted by that, you shouldn't be betting that much. Um, right. For the second part of the question, I, there, there's already been a game that aired where I had 8,400. I lost it all in the first Daily Double, but I kept my composure. I built up, I think it was 7,200, bet it all on the next Daily Double because I knew that was the right move, and I came back and won the game. And I really feel like if you have faith in your analysis that one single loss should never shake your confidence in yourself,
3: and, uh, James, playing off that daily double strategy and also the fact that you mentioned you get uh, frustrated when a coach doesn't uh, kind of make the right decision, um, in what ways do you see casual sports betters leave money on the table? And I don't know if that frustrates you, too, but I imagine you're not a big fan of parlays. And, you know, are there other betting mistakes that kind of make you cringe when uh, you you see that uh, either the same bettor makes the same mistakes over and over or such a large pool of uh, players are always making the same mistakes?
7: You know, I think there's a bit of a stigma attached to parlays. So it doesn't really need to be there. There's nothing inherently wrong mathematically with betting a parlay, unless, of course, you're the type of person who always hedges the last leg. You know, if you're going to hedge the last leg, you're a 10-team parlay. Just bet a nine-teamer instead. Um, but, you know, of course, most people who are betting at the sportsbook aren't winning players, and no system is ever going to overcome the house edge for them. I would say the much bigger mistakes are people who buy picks from touts or the type of people who will better team and then if their team gets out to an early lead they'll automatically try to middle in the in game you know if you really believe that your side was the right one at the start of the game just because they're up 10-0 you shouldn't have to change the uh, sides in the middle
1: straight from one big name guest to another one of poker's greatest ambassadors daniel negranu joined us just before the 2019 world series of poker got underway
3: you know, we've been asking this question since about 2012, but uh, uh, how optimistic uh, would you say you are you know, currently that online poker is eventually going to make that big, strong comeback in the U.S. with uh,
8: you know, solving liquidity problems and compacts and all that? Well, for me, I think you know, what we need to do is piggyback sports because sports has gotten legislation that's been very favorable to legalize sports betting, and it's certainly much more popular. I mean, poker is kind of a niche, sport, niche game where you know, people, not as many people... Are going to be involved in that is sports betting. So if sports betting sites start to proliferate across the country, um, they may want to add a component to keep you know players on the site, which would be something along the lines of online poker. So I think piggybacking on that type of legislation is our best shot. Um, you know I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because um, again, poker, uh, sports betting just going to be a lot more lucrative for these companies. They don't have as much incentive to you know uh, offer poker as well.
1: Along those lines, is it, is it frustrating to you at all as a poker guy to see how much more quickly and easily things have taken off with, with sports betting than they did with online poker?
8: I don't know if I'd use the word frustrating. I do think it is kind of silly when we think of America being the land of the free. But, you know, you can't sit on your toilet and play on a laptop, whereas in Russia, you know, the big bad Russia, you know, people can play online in a lot of other countries. So kind of silly, really, that the government is not seeing the value of, you know, getting on board here from a tax perspective and, you know, having online gaming be regulated, because it's gonna happen anyway, as we've seen. Even after Black Friday, there were sites that popped up, unregulated sites, and and people are always gonna find a way to play.
1: Former American Gaming Association Vice President, Sarah Slane, went out on her own, launching Slane Advisory in 2019, and she joined us to talk about some ways sports betting was evolving at the time. Had you started this venture a year ago, you would have been meeting with a lot of potential clients who probably wouldn't have had a whole lot of understanding of the sports betting industry. Are you expecting that still to be the case to a degree now, or are people in the sports and media and tech worlds significantly more knowledgeable about the basics of sports betting now?
9: Um, I think that there is still a huge education curve that that um, is taking place, and about business objectives and about the industry writ large, and who the people are and who the players are and what their objectives are. And you know, I think because this is rolling out on a state by state basis, it gets you know that much more complicated um, because it is not a one size fits all. So um, I do think that there is uh, a lot of need for uh, that help and guidance right now.
3: Okay. And uh, Sarah, you know, Eric mentioned you'll be likely working with professional sports leagues. Um, You've definitely gained some national renown for your sometimes colorful opposition to integrity fees for the (laughs) leagues being mandated by state legislators. But, But I think it's fair to say that you also found common ground with the leagues on some issues.
9: Yeah, and and that's, I think, you know, everyone across the board from MLB to NBA, you know, good relationships outside of um, those things that we disagree on. But, you know, for the large part, and I've said this all the time, is we do agree on 95% of what it is that we're all trying to accomplish. And, you know, they want to see a thriving sports betting market. We want to see the illegal market shut down. We want to see consumers move from the illegal to the legal regulated market. And, you know, I think we both recognize that uh, this is only going to be able to uh, to be accomplished through partnership. I think the area in which we disagree is MBA and MLB would like to see things done in in statute and not through contract necessarily when it comes to the integrity fee and um, the mandatory data rights. So, you know, I, I do think that, again, you know, Hopefully, that there'll be more alignment as more as more markets start to open up, and more opportunities present themselves.
1: Shortly before the 2019 NFL season began, Fanduel President and COO Kip Levin joined us, and we asked him about the popularity of betting on a different sport. On the heels of the equal pay chance at the end of the Women's World Cup, I'm curious how women's sports are performing for you as betting markets. We just had the Women's World Cup. We have Wimbledon going on right now, where the women tend to be a comparable TV draw in America to the men. Are you seeing any telling patterns about your customers' interest in betting on women's sports?
10: I, I mean, the, the interest in the Women's World Cup, I'll just – talk specifically to that because I've spent more time looking at that. We're obviously still in the middle of Wimbledon, but I would say that it dramatically exceeded everybody's expectations. Um, You know, I think, and it's interesting, right? We have guys that are, you know, in our our risk in our trading team who sell of our lines, who build the markets and so on. You know, they've come from our international businesses in in Europe and Australia. You know, they, you know, they've never seen anything like it. Right. Hmm. You know, when you look at our businesses elsewhere around the world um, and it's really exciting, I think it's really sort of telling to the popularity of women's sports here. Um, but I, I would say look across I looked at some of the numbers across our global business, um, again, between Europe here um, in New Jersey and Australia and the Women's Cup uh, semifinal between the U.S. and England was the largest um, was the largest women's sporting event in terms of total turnover um, in the history of Paddy Power Betfair, which has now been renamed as the Flutter Group, um, and the, the women's final was um, slightly less. Um, obviously, the England-US matchup drew a lot of interest in, in the UK as well, um, but you know by a by a small margin. So they were the top two event women's sporting events, team sports events, um, in the history of our global business.
11: Hmm.
1: It's it's interesting. It's it's good to hear that it's doing well. I mean, I suppose one could wonder, you know, if if the Women's World Cup was taking place overlapping with NFL season, would it get totally lost in the shuffle? That maybe it's uh, it benefits somewhat from occurring when it does. But that's still that's still good to hear that it uh, that it's driving so much business for you.
10: I, yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't bet on that. I mean, it was um, it was definitely a huge draw, and I think. You know, I think if you had it, you know, in the U.S. time zones and in prime mm-hmm. time here, it could have been even bigger. So, um, so again, we were we were really excited to see it, and a, a testament to the, you know, um, the to the the abilities of the, the U.S. women's team. I think they really were, you know, obviously phenomenal, and um, uh, you know, drew huge national interest.
1: Dr. David J. Chow is best known as Pro Football Doc on Twitter, where his real-time injury insights help sports bettors and fantasy players decide what to do. He came on Gamble On right after an accumulation of injuries led Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck to retire.
3: Yeah, Dr. Uh, obviously Andrew Luck's uh, retirement is the talk of the football world in the past week. Um, uh, There's a long list of pretty specific injuries that he has suffered and I'm kind of curious uh, and it's maybe the same one I'm not sure but is there one of these that you know based on the information that you do have would probably be the most painful and is there uh, another one or maybe the same that would be kind of the most dangerous and the the biggest reason that he might have been smart smart to retire
12: well I mean uh, you know first thing I have to say is uh, you know I wish Andrew the best but uh, he's kind of costing me my Super Bowl pick for fun Uh, (laughs) I had, you know, uh, I don't have a rooting interest per se, but just looking at it objectively, why I was very high on the Colts. They made the playoffs last year. They were a young, rising team, and they return all 22 starters, or they did, 11 starters on both sides of the ball. I mean, so first of all, it's very unusual to return all 22 starters, and uh, they had that. And they seem to be on a trajectory up, so I was really high on them. But now, who who knows, right? Uh, As far as, you know, your question about retirement, boy, you know, if you want to be as safe as possible, you absolutely should retire, and you shouldn't play the game of football. I tell everyone, you know, playing football is like riding a motorcycle. It's more dangerous than driving in a car. Uh, I tell parents that for kids and athletes, I've told many a time, uh, let's say on a typical knee issue, I'll say, "What? what's the best you – know, Doc, what's the best thing to do for my knee? You want to know the best thing? Like, yeah. I said, lose 100 pounds and quit playing football. <laughs> like, no, 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 you know what I mean. You know, the best thing for me to do and play football. Okay, well, then that's where it is. So, you know, from a health perspective, football is not a contact sport. It is a collision sport, right? And so there's that. Now, with that being said, I don't know what Andrew Luck's absolute – Ankle injury is, or you know, it doesn't seem like the Colts have told us either. It obviously has morphed over five plus months. I actually don't see that as an injury that he could not play through. Certainly, you've seen him in pregame warm up after before the second game where he looked pretty good, where they said, Well, maybe he still can't roll out and do everything, he's going to be in some pain. If you read my article, through my Twitter timeline, it's up there, or, or Google Pro Football Doc and Andrew Luck. You'll see my explanation of it. I am not calling Andrew Luck soft. Here's what I'm saying. He kind of told us that this was possible. Not that I predicted it. I did not predict it. But he's being true to his word. So what did he say and what happened? First of all, I said, Look, this is an injury that has been morphing over five months, whether calf, high ankle-ish, bone this, that, the other. The Colts were still getting new opinions right up until the last week or so. But something that's lingered for five months isn't going to get better in another couple of weeks with rest and altered rehab. So I was saying if he was going to play week one, he was going to have to play through pain. And quite honestly, if he sat out week one, That probably is going to extend to week two, three, four, who knows. Now, the other side of the equation is what has Andrew Luck told us? He has said, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't have all the quotes in front of me. uh, The shoulder took a lot out of me. I learned a lot about the shoulder. I learned to listen to my body. I'm not going to push through. You can't rush the process. There's no substitute for doing the right way. The shoulder was really hard on me. And he has, quote, what? vowed not to do that again so if you put those two things together what's shocking is here's a guy who told us how he felt and he actually executed it right i mean instead of you know a lot of times you get guys that go yeah i know i said that but you know here's the excitement of the season i'm just going to suck it up and go but he actually was a man of his word i think he told us and if he i wish i was smart enough to have put it all together ahead of time. right? (laughs) Um, But looking at it, you could see where he he laid it out and followed through.
1: Before he moved to Connecticut to go to work for ESPN, Daily Wager host Doug Kazarian was a Las Vegas-based journalist, and he had some interesting insights on the spread of legal sports betting's impact on Vegas.
3: Yeah, you know, Doug, there was some speculation about whether Las Vegas is going to be hurt by losing that, you know, decades-long near monopoly on sports betting. Um, and if you look at the numbers in state just in New Jersey, they're really strong in the first year, uh, but so are Nevadas. So, you know, as a former resident out there, um, did you have any question as to whether Las Vegas could retain its full status as the sports betting power of the world? And, uh, and do you think that question's already completely ended and, and they won that game?
13: I have been, since day one of legalization, 100% in the camp that Vegas will be helped by the oh. legal legalization of sports betting because of a couple things. One is only a couple times a year like Super Bowl, March Madness, maybe NFL opening weekend, something like that. Do people go to Vegas with the with the prioritization of sports betting? Usually it's conferences, um parties, pool parties, uh just gaming, couples weekend getaway whatever. It's always like sports betting supplemental to the, to the option. It's mostly table games, right? That drives the handle for these casinos and the people I spoke to and all agreed is as long as if sports betting is a larger part of someone's daily behavior, when they're not visiting Vegas back in their homes of Montana, Texas, whatever, because legalization, and then they go to Vegas and they're there for a couple's getaway or a bachelor party or a conference. If they're already used to betting on sports, then they're going to bet sports when they're there. So if they're already doing it and it's part of their daily behavior, that's a win for Vegas. So I think the handle is going to go up in uh, in
2: sports for sports
13: betting in Vegas after legalization, and it's just become more commonplace. Look at shows like Daily Wager, or media companies. It's going to become more ever present, like in our day to day life. That so when they're t- when they're traveling, they're going to want to bet when they travel to those states. And if Nevada is the state, then so be it.
1: We've only had one pro sports Hall of Famer on the show, longtime NFL kicker Morton Anderson. We caught up with him in Las Vegas at the G2E convention in 2019, and because this interview was done in person in a crowded convention hall, the sound is quite a bit different from our usual interview clips. Apologies also for my extremely hoarse voice, as clearly I was partying a little too hard on this trip.
3: Morton, I want to follow up. Uh, if anybody heard last week's uh, episode, I talked to I had talked to Imani Toomer, the Giants wide receiver, mm-hmm. and um, he kind of confirmed what my sense has been covering pro athletes since the 1980s, which is uh, uh, gamblers will not believe generally how little athletes know about gambling while they're true. playing. Uh, he said, even after he retired, after a long career, uh, he had to be taught exactly how a point spread worked uh, after having played all those years in the NFL, yep. and I think some of that's true. Now, you, you played with the Giants, kind of a laid-back culture, uh, buttoned down. Uh, you played with a half-dozen teams. Um, in your experience for yourself and then also for your teammates, uh, how much awareness was there about gambling, money
14: lines, you name yeah, it? Very, very little, and it, it's funny. That there was this false this notion that, oh, you're a kicker, so people must been trying to bribe you try to get you to throw the game for money and literally I can say in 25 years and I played longer than anybody uh, let alone uh, you know besides George bland I played more games than anybody in none of those 382 regular season games was I ever approached by anybody who was gonna was trying to to affect the game uh, by bribing uh, bribing a player that I'm aware of and so you're right. Uh, I, Amani was a, a teammate of mine with the Giants. Great, great player, and we lived in this uh, ignorant bliss, you know. Right. Just was never really a priority for us. We were much more interested in making the process of the, the preparation for the game as powerful as possible, and uh, really didn't have any time uh, to to even focus on that part, you know.
0: Right.
14: So, so it was never really anything that was even brought up either. Right. And but
1: so even I, uh, you know, nobody was bribing you or anything like that, but was it ever just in the back of your mind a sort of a form of pressure thinking no. Besides, obviously, you've got your own pressure as a place kicker. <laughs> it's important to make that kick, but do, does, it, does it ever cross your mind if people have money riding on, on this? No, never out? thought. Really and I would have guys.
15: Job. You
14: know, I've had guys come up to me afterwards and like, go, oh, "You cost me a lot of money." I say, "Well, you, you poor better." You're <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. And you, you know, and I say, "Hey, you won me a lot of money." I say, "Where's my half?" You know, so I could I could play it any way I wanted. Right. So exactly. You know, just never crossed my mind. Never really entered into the equation at all uh, about. You know, pressure only happens anyway when your skill set doesn't match the task. That's when you feel the pressure. And so we were I was focused as a player, really, on just trying to maximize those short times I was out there. Okay. Didn't really think about the ramifications. I was trying to win the game.
1: Here's something a little different. Las Vegas insider and publisher Anthony Curtis talking about a lucrative venture he was long ago banned from participating in, blackjack card counting.
3: So uh, Eric tells me, Anthony, that you uh, know more than a little bit about uh, uh, card counting. And, you know, obviously for the casual gambler, um, there's such a mystique involved there and how that works. And can you just describe a little bit about what the dance is like between a casino and a a card counter?
11: Yeah. Well, you know, card counting itself is, uh, it sounds really sexy, but it's pretty boring. Uh, (laughs) You know, basically sit there and you do a bunch of, of, uh, you know, mental gymnastics and math in your head. It's kind of like going up and down a number line, really but then there are some conversions you have to make and, and bring up some industry numbers, but you're doing all this in your head and you're playing the game. And you're, and you're, first of all, getting yelled at by other customers who, uh, who don't understand what you're doing and telling you that you play like shit. Uh, and, and then you're, you know, you're trying to stay under the radar with the casinos, you know, that's the dance you're talking about. So I've always said, you know, playing blackjack for a living is, is equal parts, uh, art, uh, science and arts. And the science is actually what I just described learning how to do it. The art is getting away with it, and that's just looking like a general rube. It's just looking like you're having time. It's, it's you know, drinking a Heineken while you play. It's you know, ogling the the cocktail waitress. It's chatting with the pit boss. It's you know, not getting too mad when you lose or too excited when you win. It's uh, it's it's just a big old act, as we call it. It's uh, it's camouflage and an act.
1: Yeah, I, I recall being uh with you in Vegas one time where we were sort of standing in the vicinity of a blackjack table and you sort of told me watch this watch how close they descend if I get any closer than this. How, how long has it been since you uh were able to play a hand of blackjack in Vegas?
11: Uh, you know, I haven't I've hardly played a hand of blackjack in Vegas in jeez, man, going on going on 15 years now probably. Okay. You know, every <laughs> once in a while I just go and, and the longer it goes the less the less I'm known. And, you know, the more I can do and I can sit down and play for small stakes. But, you know, they have the wrong impression that like I'm I'm an ATM or something or they're an ATM to me. I can go up and just extract money at will. It's, you know, it's nothing like that. If I sit down and play at a table, I'm, you know, I'm just a little over 50 percent to come out ahead. Um, and, you know, one time I, I was doing something for a documentary and they wanted to play with live money. And I said, well, if it's OK with the with the bosses. And they're like, absolutely not. We will not play for live money. You can film it for live money, but at the end, we'll settle up and we'll go back <laughs> to, to zero. So we're not doing it for real. I lost 17 hands in a row. <laughs> I looked at the guy just laughed. I go, see? You know, so I mean, it's, um, they overreact. There's, there's absolutely an overreaction.
1: One of the biggest industry stories just prior to the pandemic hitting was the controversial million-dollar DFS football win of a former Bachelorette contestant. Here's one of our most frequent guests, Roto-Grinders' Dan Bach, breaking down the situation for us. In a court of law, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. From everything you know about this Jade Tanner DraftKings case, do you feel like the evidence is there beyond a reasonable doubt to say that there was either collusion or multi-accounting?
15: Yeah, I think when you look at both of those situations, because I think that's the key, I think it might be tough to make a distinct claim that it's one or the other, but when you look at them both together, I think it's pretty safe that one of those two things took place. And, uh, you know, th- it's really kind of ramping up here. You know, the, the guy who finished second in the Millie Maker just retained an attorney today. And I think that, you know, this is I'll say spiraling out of control, but DraftKings needs to make a decision on how they want to handle this quickly. And uh, I don't think this is ever going to see a courtroom. I think there's going to be a lot of negotiations happening between uh, all the parties involved, and probably a lot of NDAs to be signed as well. But I definitely think you know there is a ton of smoke around what people are talking about in terms of the rules being broken. And I also think it's important for DraftKings to uh, to make a statement in the in the sense of hey, if we find people breaking our rules, we are going to do something about it. And because they've always kind of stood by the we investigate things, but we don't discuss because of privacy reasons or whatnot. So we have no idea how many of these other cases they could have potentially even snuffed out because they don't tell you that. Now, here's something that's very public, and I think it's time for them to get in front of it and tell us what they found. Whether Even if they found that they believe she's the one that entered the contest, that's fine. But the last thing that I want is a lawyered response from DraftKings about this. I don't know right. if we're going to get anything non-lawyered from them, but uh, it's that's where I kind of stand on this.
1: Yeah, and as you said, it's only getting more complicated now that the the runner-up has lawyered up here. Um, you know, just looking at the, I don't want, I hesitate to use the word evidence, but a lot of circumstantial evidence, I think, in parts of this. But the one thing to me that feels like the smoking gun, if there is one is the quarterbacks the that distribution i think you can explain away a a lot of the rest of it but it just looks to me like this was a case of laziness in covering tracks you know i'm going to do these three quarterbacks with this account and these other three quarterbacks with the other account and then distribute all my other players normally uh that's to me where it crosses beyond a reasonable doubt Do, do you agree that that's maybe the the uh the firmest piece of evidence here I think it might
15: be a, – a, a, I don't know about the firmest because okay. the, the thing about it is, you know, I think that actually boils down to the collusion side of things. Because you're right, if two people are working together the way those lineups were built, it, it makes a lot of sense to to, to think like they were built together. There was just no overlap of of that position. Um, but you also, you know, do we look back beyond that? I mean, they did this for like 17 weeks during the regular season. And for me, that's like the biggest red flag here is to think that every contest that she has entered that I looked at, she max entered and he max entered. That mm-hmm. really stinks. That's, I mean, you're talking like upwards of $6,000 a week between the two of them into this contest. So, um, you know, I think that the collusion angle, if they want to go there, they can look at the player pool and the way the lineups are built, and I think you're on to something. But I still firmly believe this is more likely a case of multi-accounting where you've got one person who's, trying, who's basically exceeding the entry limits because it just doesn't make a lot of sense for two people to play that many lineups unless they're just – total dfs degenerates and i just don't think that she is so uh i mean that's i am a dfs degenerate and and i didn't do that i wouldn't do that so uh it's just hard for me to believe that there's two of those type of people in the same household
1: earlier this year espn's don van natta hosted an episode of his show backstory focusing on the scandals surrounding baseball greats pete rose and shoeless joe jackson Don joined us on Gamble On to offer additional perspective. To what extent, if at all, would you say Major League Baseball has lost the moral high ground when it comes to Rose and the Black Sox now that the league is partnering with sports books and making money off sports gambling both directly and indirectly? Does, Does this change anything?
16: Well, I think it does. And one of the big uh, reasons and launching pads for this particular episode wasn't just because there was such a confluence of timing and events with Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose. It was also because of 2018, because the Supreme Court opened the floodgates to legalize gambling across the country and all these states are now coming online we felt it just, it changed the dynamic. It changed the way we should consider Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose in light of baseball really going all in and seeing legalized gambling as a way to turbocharge fans' interest, uh, particularly young fans. Um, it's partnerships with MGM Grand, with DraftKings, uh, even Commissioner Manfred, who was so concerned about the slow pace of play and suddenly After the Supreme Court made his decision, he said, well, maybe the slow pace of play isn't such a big problem because, of course, it opens up more opportunities for in-game wagering. So all of those things uh, really, I think, should change the way we view baseball seeing gambling as the third rail, as really the the original sin. Um, And you can see why they do. You know, there were players for the White Sox that took bribes to throw a World Series. That's Mm -hmm. something very serious and really undercut the confidence in the game. Uh, You can make the argument, though, that Pete Rose betting on his own team, granted, illegally with illegal bookmakers, is not seen with the same taboo today as it was seen then. And, you know, Faye Vincent, uh, the commissioner who was the deputy commissioner when the uh, punishment was accepted by Pete Rose for uh, to be banned from baseball, said in our episode, and I thought very tellingly, that now that the culture has changed in America when it comes to gambling, he thinks it's inevitable that Pete Rose will get into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, when those punishments came down, guys, last week, Uh, of the general manager and the manager of the Astros and that $5 million fine. Pete Rose was trending on Twitter for hours worldwide because baseball fans were looking at the scales of justice and saying, wait a minute, no players here are getting punished, uh, just the manager and the general manager. And yet Pete Rose is now in year 31 of his ban from baseball. And still on the outside looking in, is that fair? And I think that those conversations are going to continue. And judging from just anecdotally from the fans that I've heard from since Backstory has debuted this weekend, uh, I think a lot of people are in Pete Rose's corner. They feel enough is enough, 30 years is enough, and they put it up against baseball profiting from gambling, embracing gambling, and looking at whether there's some hypocrisy here on the part of baseball to still hold up Pete Rose as a villain.
1: Responsible gaming is an aspect of this industry that doesn't get enough attention, although we've tried to do our part on GambleOn to discuss it periodically. In March, we had the legislative director for the National Council on Problem Gambling, Brianne Dora Shawal, on the pod.
3: Yeah, now, Brianne, there's, uh, you know, I talked about 15 or 16 states have just legalized sports betting in the last two years, but there's another 15 or 16 states, or Mm -hmm. 20 maybe, who are looking at it closely. So if if we're kind of talking, to a legislator right now or his aide as you do so often traveling around um you know what what states have like the best specific programs where if, if an open-minded legislator wanted to say you know how can i how can I be the best in the country what would i do you know would it be take this from this state and this from that state you know kind of your dream scenario i guess
17: ah yes i get this question a lot and man, oh, man do i wish i could just copy and paste from one state and have everyone's answers um so here's the thing we need to talk about dedicating funding, protected funds for problem gambling. That needs to come in the form of research, prevention, treatment, and recovery initiatives. Massachusetts, although doesn't have sports betting at this time, did a really stellar job in their statute to make sure that all of those provisions were accounted for. So when I talk to states and say, yes, I understand it's not in the context of sports betting, but it is in the context of gambling, let's look at Massachusetts. Um, We also need to be thinking about conducting research prior to expansion and at intervals thereafter. Um, Again, New Jersey um, and Massachusetts have done this, so I'd like to see that incorporated into legislation. Consistent minimum age, um, we're all over the map, right? Who is in charge of sports betting? If it's the lottery, does that mean it's likely going to be 18? If it's casinos, 21? we really do advocate that we need to be consistent within a state. I really haven't seen one state get it completely right. Um, but again, it's about continued education and talking through these things. And then I always say, really it's important about having adaptive regulations. If we go and garner all of this research and we make all these sizable investments, if we're not able to adapt to our findings, then it was all moot. So we need to make sure we also have good, sound policy that can adapt to the information that we got.
1: Is legal betting on political elections coming to America soon? Lobbyist William Pascrell III, the son of a politician,
3: recently weighed in. And last thing, Bill, uh, you know, uh, we've... Talked in the podcast a few times this year about the fact that uh, the UK and Ireland in particular are fascinated with American politics and wagering on it, and they wager a lot on it. And uh, this of course this year is rather momentous by by all accounts. And uh, so I, I've I've talked to other guests about it, but um, you're the only one who has a father in the House of Representatives, so uh, Bill Portsmell Jr. So uh, uh, you're, you're you're involved in state politics anyway, but obviously you know a lot personally about the uh, the national mood. Um, how about what are the odds that um, an American in any state uh, can legally bet on the 2024 president's election, for instance.
18: Think legal. This is a conversation, John, you may, I might've shared this with you uh, that I had with governor Christie about six or seven years ago. And he said, William, I've done a lot here. I've, I've moved online. I've l- moved sports, exchange wagering. He's a like, good, you're not doing that under my watch. Every politician I've talked to in America to date, everyone mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. said, no way. Now, I just say to folks who want to do it, just give me a call when I'm over in London. and I'll I'll, I'll be happy to uh, check out the bet for you. I can't place it though, right, John? (laughs) (laughs) So, So I don't see it happening in the near future. But I will also tell you, a year ago, this July 4th, when I was in Barcelona speaking at the World Gaming Executive Summit, I get a phone call from the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest folks who wanted to have that legalized. Uh, uh, for betting, and obviously, the director Reebok appropriately said no because there are no rules and regs and a you know a legitimate league in place. But we are betting on a host of other things. We're now betting on weather and virtual darts and virtual horse racing. So, in time, that may happen. And I will say this the best way to regulate something because you know, John, on the street, you can place a bet on whether Joe Biden has a prayer or not, right? You can do that on mm-hmm. the street, people will take that bet. Mm -hmm. Um, But but the the, the issue becomes politicians were very loathsome to get into online because they didn't quite understand that the most valuable thing for a gaming entity is the license. Nobody's going to put their license at stake. When my grandmother, God rest her soul, was alive and used to go to AC twice a week, when she heard I was involved in online gaming, she's like, Billy, you're getting involved with those dodgy players they're just, they're fixing the, 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 uh, gambling online. You think you play blackjack? They're really honest and honorable. And I say, grandma, they are. She goes, you're such a fool. Well, so that's been the challenge. (laughs) And it is age specific. The older, and we have a lot of older legislators, my dad being one, the older you are, the less inclined you are to support online. Mm -hmm. Um, but then again, all Americans love sports betting. They've been doing it for years illegally and the best way to crack down on the black market and the the uh, money laundering and all is to legalize and regulate it.
1: And finally, on our hundredth episode, we welcomed one of the industry's biggest personalities, fifteen-time World Series of Poker bracelet winner Phil Hellmuth. Among other topics, we asked the poker brat about the prospects for the WSOP during the pandemic. Do you think at this point that there's any kind of a realistic chance of an in-person world series of any kind in the fall? And if not, what do you think of the idea of an online main event in the fall that maybe has a live final table? Would that be a, a reasonable option? Do you
0: think? Well, that's a great idea. I like that idea a lot. Cause that is possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what you, what you'd have to do is you'd have to test everybody. You You have to put, I mean, you tell those players, hey, listen, if you're going to play this event, the final table is going to be in 14 days. It's going to be at a studio in Vegas, maybe the Poker Go studio. It's already set up, and everybody has to isolate at the ARIA because you guys are going to have to trust each other, you know, and then maybe – and then I think it could happen, and there will be tests. And, hey, if you're stupid enough to not to, – to get COVID during that time and we find out that it's because you were out at a club somewhere – then you're going to have to forfeit and finish ninth or eighth place or something. So very strict guidelines on people, very strict rules in place. And I think it could be great. Then you could have, that's a really good idea. I like that a lot. Hmm. Um, I mean, NBA is doing a bubble, right? Why can't we? Right.
1: But so, but, but, uh, uh, by sort of skipping over the the first part of the question, does that sort of suggest you don't think there's any realistic chance of of doing a anything more than than something like a, a single table? Live Eric, don't this read to me skipping over stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i do that too often i i think it's i certainly i think it's a great idea and i think it's completely possible to do that especially i mean you have nba games going on we can't have one final table with nine players so yeah of course it's realistic right right no but i mean i guess i was asking like anything
1: more than than that like doing a, an actual live world series yeah. of any kind this fall do you think that's not realistic for 2020 at not point? realistic
0: okay. too many lawsuits too many people too many critics too much criticism i mean imagine world's gonna go crazy if we do that, right? We're all in a room somewhere and everybody's what are these people doing? Blah, 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 blah. So I mean it just, just can't happen. And I'm also concerned about, you know, whether there'll be a twenty twenty one World Series of poker. Right. I'm very concerned about that. Um twenty twenty two seems like we'll be able to do it. That we should have some vaccines in place. But I mean, my friends told me vaccines are, you know, no matter how much we rush, you know, always a year away, year and a half away. So I don't think we're going to have a 2021 World Series of Poker, Um, unfortunately. I I mean, it'll be online, yes, but not in the real world.
1: And on that sobering note, we hope you enjoyed this trip down Gamble On Memory Lane. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And until then, to steal my co-host John Brennan's catchphrase, Gamble On, everybody.